The Mumbrella Awards shortlist has been announced. Congratulations to all who have been shortlisted. View the full list and book your tables to see who will take home the final prize by going to mumbrella.com.au slash Mumbrella Awards. Welcome back to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Callum Jasmine, and today, how are brands and comms recognizing and celebrating First Nations people? And how is your company continuing this work beyond just this week being Reconciliation Week? Cox in Old Ridgeway's general manager, Yasu Widders Hunt, joins the podcast. Then we take a look at the expensive life of a sports fan in Australia as Optus becomes the next to up the pricing and its subscription service. Finally, how important are independent newswires for the media ecosystem? Following a six-month trial with Nine being signed last week, two years after its co-majority stakeholder opted to close the service down, you'll hear from AAP CEO Lisa Davies. Joining me today to discuss all of this in person in Melbourne, it's acting managing editor Andrew Banks. Cal, thank you so much for making the weather so hospitable and it's really, really nice to see you in your natural habitat. Yeah, well, we surely put on a show for you on the first day of winter. And also up in Sydney, all alone this time, it's reporter Kalila Welsh. Hello. Feeling a little bit lonely on my end for a change. It's super cold in Sydney today, but I'm sure not nearly as cold as it is down in Melbourne. Yeah, certainly. Well, if you could see um, the screen right now, whoever's listening, you would see Banksy in some sort of ridiculous winter hat um, sitting inside. It's my thinking cap, Callum. My thinking cap. (laughs) <laughs> anyway, we're going to kick things off with that interview with Cox and Old Ridgeway's general manager, Yatu Widdershunt. Yatu Widdershunt, general manager of Cox and Old Ridgeway and member of the Dungati and Nanaiwan peoples of the northern tablelands of New South Wales. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me and happy Reconciliation Week. Yes, happy Reconciliation Week, uh, which is, of course, this week. I, I feel like saying at the start, uh, while it is a great opportunity for the industry to look at the history and achievements and culture of First Nations people, as well as sort of in our industry in particular, um, I, f- I feel as though also sometimes subjugates uh, discussions to in the in particular this week and you know from umbrella in particular as that's all we can kind of talk from our perspective we have to hold our hands up to that as well um the 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 theme of this year is um be brave make change um it it would be great for us to i guess start by you taking us through i guess an explanation of what that means and kind of expand it a little bit yeah, sure. I mean, I guess it's definitely can mean different things to different people. I guess the way that I interpret it and what I think is exciting about it is that it's very much a call to action um, and for people to feel empowered and confident to participate in, in reshaping Australia and work in partnership with First Nations communities. And I guess if you think about Um, the history, there have been so many inquiries, so many evaluations, so much investigation, so much talk about issues, but the solutions actually live within First Nations communities. So it's a really, I guess, I think it's an invitation to walk together. Can you take, I guess, starting off, because I know Cox and Old Ridgeway does work with some Australian brands and companies around for example, um, reconciliation acts and plans. I know you did one with um, JC, you have JC Deco developing theirs uh, this year. Can you take us through what some brands have been doing in order to sort of raise awareness and I guess maybe take steps forward in um, 
recognizing and raising awareness around First Nations people? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's um, so much that's going on across various sectors in the media industry, as well as in fashion and retail, um, and also in broader corporate Australia and government agencies as well. There are some incredible things happening. There are lots of brands and organisations who are really focused on their internal policy development. So we're seeing things like acknowledgement of country protocols being developed, Indigenous engagement strategies that outline robust principles that um, apply to the whole organisation. We're seeing brands um, embed experiential learning for their staff where Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples come in, have yarning sessions, share information, share stories from different sectors and industries. Um, and really excitingly for us, obviously I have a PR background myself, um, actually seeing the elevation of First Nations storytelling by First Nations peoples on platforms that have huge reach um, and are accessible and exciting and celebratory um, for broader Australia. So I guess those are some of the some of the things. And it's probably worth pointing out that it's not all external facing. It's not all the big, yeah. flashy campaign launches. It's also the work behind the scenes that really sets brands up for success. Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting you mentioned that there was a. Um, I think a quote from JC Deco's Steve O'Connor, where he said um, that the the reconciliation plan wasn't just about ensuring that the company's ticking a box. Um, do I guess what 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 is involved from your end in kind of helping develop these, and how can you kind of and working with those companies ensure that it's not just ticking a box? Yeah, definitely. I mean, Reconciliation Australia do a great job at providing templates for organisations. And there's also a number of different phases of a Reconciliation Action Plan. So um, Reconciliation Australia can, can work with organisations, as can we, um, and other specialist agencies to identify where someone might be on their reconciliation journey and ensure that the right wrap phase or the right wrap template is provided. It's really important, I guess, from our point of view and from a First Nations point of view to really understand the motivation of a brand or organisation to really shape out what some of those commitments might look like. And where we've actually seen the most success is where brands and organisations are able to tailor or add commitments that are specific to their industry or identify where they can make the biggest difference. So I think, you know, it's easy to get the template and just do the bare, the bare minimum, but where it's really exciting is thinking about what role can we as a business or organisation play? What do we know how to do? What uh, partnerships yeah. can we form? And thinking about influence in your sector, which, which is incredibly powerful. And then um, one of the points we also discussed um, looking at was the importance of Australian businesses supporting the Uluru Statement from the heart. Um, can, you, can you take us through that a little bit and maybe a few examples of particular brands that are kind of doing this in the right manner? Yeah, sure. I mean, we've seen increasing corporate support uh, for the Uluru Statement. There's been lots of uh, big organisations, including some of Australia's leading law firms, actually lending their voice to supporting this. It's, it is it is an exciting time following um, a change of government in Australia. We now also have a commitment from the new government to pursue the Uluru Statement from the heart in full. I think where we've seen um, really positive action is not just in putting out a press release to say we back this, it's actually in using your influence and channels to invite conversation, 
And if you think about what it's going to take to go to a referendum and achieve a yes vote at a referendum, <clears throat> we need to be talking to all of Australia. Yeah. And the, the authors of the Uluru Statement talk very openly that this is not just an invitation to politicians, this is an invitation to Australians. Um, so we're seeing lots of social content being put out. It, it doesn't have to be, um, as I mentioned, I guess, just a straightforward links. It can actually be um, brands and organisations inviting conversation and not being afraid to state their position as well. I think lots of organisations sometimes get nervous about stepping into Indigenous affairs, but what we're seeing is increasing um, excitement and engagement from customers, consumers and communities wanting to see that leadership. And we saw it from a lot of organisations like Qantas during the marriage equality um, movement, and now we're seeing it again, um, and we hope that it increases for the Uluru Statement. Yeah. And do you think it is sort of just about kind of approaching it in that manner with kind of excitement and actual engagement that is the best way to go about it? Because I know we've spoken previously on this podcast about, you know, brands sort of co-opting moments or certain topics such as Pride Month, um, you know, and we've seen products be released for certain months of uh, awareness. Do you, how do you think it's best to sort of go about that with the right sensitivity? Well, I guess the, the it's really important to get the approach right. And from from our point of view, everything um, we do should be in partnership with First Nations peoples. So even when we're talking about campaigns, um, press releases, uh, advice on internal policy making, uh, social content, it's always important to work in partnership, and we off, which is a little bit of a shift, I guess, from how we might work in a traditional agency model, yeah. where we see the answers live in the agency or clients come to agencies for solutions or to brands for solutions. The solutions actually are co-created in a collaborative way, and that takes time, investment, and engagement. Um, I definitely take your point about, you know, some we have seen co-opting of different things. We saw that with the Black Lives Matter movement as well. Where we've seen success is where organisations are actually creating space for people who have lived experience of those issues to tell their own stories in their own words. Uh, we saw that with social takeovers and other things. Um, you know, yeah. a really good example of a partnership we see uh, Channel 10 is actually working with National Indigenous Television co-commissioning um, content. So yeah. we can see these big influential partnerships are actually driving significant change um, and, and enjoying significant reach out into broader Australia. And have you seen, um, I guess you, you mentioned earlier in terms of products and, you know, raising awareness and profiling. Do you, do, do you, have you seen a shift in, I guess, brands putting forward First Nations people, uh, and I guess also in a shift in the way that brands more generally are using their comms? Absolutely. I mean, we see, um, you know, I personally work with a number of fashion and retail brands. We're seeing an increase in modelling diversity, a stronger representation of First Nations models, um, a stronger representation of First Nations creatives in the engagement of photographers, um, stylists, makeup artists, those kinds of things. Um, you know, I think uh, Country Road, for instance, produced um, a content, a piece of content called Larrakia. Mm -hmm. uh, so using Aboriginal language, using Aboriginal talent. So I think we're definitely seeing an increase in visibility 
our First Nations peoples and storytelling and a recognition that these stories actually shape us as part of modern Australia and are, and can actually be a really beautiful part of a brand identity and a brand sensibility as well. Um, and I think organisations are acknowledging that they have a role to represent what modern Australia looks like and pay respect to the fact that we do all work on Aboriginal lands, um, but also explore Indigenous creativity. If you think about storytelling traditions, design traditions, there's more than 60,000 years old. So we have such an opportunity to actually work together to drive exciting content, exciting campaigns um, and exciting conversations that will build a, a stronger future. And, and and just finally on that, what I guess what would you hope to see these organisations or brands doing or continue to doing in future kind of you know, after, for example, they have launched their own reconciliation action, action plan? Yeah, I mean, there's probably two two big things from, from my side, but, you know, that we are seeing some incredible creative um, opportunities. One, one is, I guess, to participate more actively in public conversations. So, um, you know, we see, I remember at the time that BLM happened, a lot of brands were extremely confused about what to do because they hadn't spoken about Aboriginal deaths in custody before. They hadn't lent their voice to, um, to these issues. So I think being an active social participant um, in these conversations and helping to contribute to genuine social change will be really important, particularly at a time um, that we're in now where we're hopefully going to have, have a referendum held in this country in the next few years. Um, and I guess the other thing is not just looking out, but looking in and really mm -hmm. thinking about uh, are there systems set up for brands and organisations to foster partnerships with First Nations peoples when they do want to speak out or do have campaign opportunities or do have the chance to tell stories? How is that being co-created and um, co-designed in partnership with communities? And um, how can that First Nations expertise not just guide a wrap, but actually guide the whole business? And I think that's where we're starting to see a shift away from diversity and inclusion to acknowledging this as a business capability. And that to me will be two really exciting things I'd, I'd love to see um, more of. Well, Yati, thank you so much um, for joining us on the Mumbrellacast today. Thank you so much. Coming up next, as Optus Sport hikes its price, how costly is it to be a sports fan in 2022 in Australia? <laughs> Cost of living has been one of the key topics for discussion in 2022, as well as here on the podcast, we've looked at the increasing presence of streamers in Australia. But over the weekend, it emerged that Optus would be raising the subscription price for Optus Sport from $14.99 a month to $24.99 a month, as well as introducing a charge of $6.99 from its mobile and broadband users, which previously had access to the services for free. A week ago, KO also introduced a slight rise in its basic subscription service for the first time since its late 2018 launch, rising from $25 to $27.50. Banksy, while a lot of Aussies love the Premier League, this is a hell of a price to watch what is realistically about a third of the soccer on offer over here in Australia. Things are becoming increasingly fragmented after you used to be able to catch most of this on Foxtel. What's the, the kind of situation here? I don't know about you, Cal, but I, I'm finding it increasingly difficult to balance not just the cost. It's it's also trying to actually find where these sports are and how I can actually watch them. It's to getting to the point where you, you've got 
only a certain amount of budget, only a certain amount of time, and and it really is a case of having to kind of ratify the two and and figure everything out. And it really is hard for for sports fans. I think that there's so much change going on, and it's becoming really really difficult to keep to keep on top of it. How about yourself? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, as I think a lot of people do, you you tend to share the services with a few people because it is just too much of an outlay by yourself. Um, but, I mean, you know, last year and since, I guess, Optus won the Premier League rights way back in 2015, um, the, 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 the market has changed incredibly. Clearly, let's say if you are a football fan in Australia, um, what are you realistically having to outlay each month if you want to catch all the action? Yeah, it's looking like you're going to have to be paying, you know, upwards of four or five subscriptions if you're wanting to kind of catch the full spectrum of football on offer locally. Um, football fans will be glad to know that SBS has the rights for the FIFA World Cup. So that is one freebie that will be available. Um, otherwise, as you mentioned, a lot of the football is going to be um, available through Optus Sport, which you said it's, you know, t- almost it's $25 plus Paramount Plus has a lot of the sport as well with the A-League, W-League and also rights to some of the Socceroos games. Stan Sport is another $20 for access to UEFA Men's Championships League. And we also have KO with some international leagues and Sports Flick as well with the UEFA Women's. Uh, all up, if you're playing by the rules, assuming that you're going to be having an you know your own subscription to each of these platforms you're looking at a minimum of about $96.50 a month and that could be more depending on you know what kind of level of subscription you have and if you're subscribing to some of the other kind of smaller players that are available that that makes that makes me very angry Kalila <laughs> makes me very angry because I'm not a sports fan but I can empathize well I know we're kind of looking at this through a, a, a football soccer as you may call it lens here but you know this extends to over other sports you know recently Stan Sport collected some rights for IndyCar racing while the F1 remains on KO you mentioned there clearly the the um the, the the World Cup will be remaining on SBS at the end of the year, and that is because um, currently the the FIFA World Cup remains protected by the anti siphoning laws. Um, another one that we've current we've kind of been following in recent weeks, as I'm sure uh, if you are even remotely a sports fan in Australia, you will have read, is the um, the, the AFL rights, which are currently up uh, at the end of 2024. Um, AFL CEO Gil McLaughlin met with um, executives in the States last month, including from Paramount and Amazon, over the rights from 2024, uh, well, beginning in 2025. Uh, Though we are likely to see some games remain on free-to-air through these anti-siphoning laws, a benefit for Paramount um, is that it has that free-to-air channel in 10, unlike Amazon, while the other players are obviously still involved. Khalil, what did McLaughlin have to say on this? He was pretty confident that the free-to-air component of the game is going to be really important, um, saying that we will still at our core have give or take that amount of content on free-to-air football because it's important that everybody can access our game and the best of our game for free. But also there are nine games a weekend. There are not enough slots for free-to-air. We will also have a subscription streaming partner, he said. So this is good and bad for 10 or Paramount, who you mentioned 
So while they do have the free-to-air component with Channel 10, obviously, which which plays into what they're after. So unfortunately for 10, they have had a slump in the ratings over the past few months. And on top of that, their five-year deal with the A-League and W-League um, hasn't gone as well as they probably would have hoped, averaged, averaging just 86,000 viewers nationally and 65,000 in the metro markets, according to um, Oztem. Their broadcast of the Australian F1 Grand Prix last month also didn't do super well with audience down 24% against that 2019 race and down 33% in the key 25 to 54 demographic, according to Oztem. Yeah, and I think it's important to note there on the the A-League, it is their first season. There are naturally going to be teething issues with adopting a new code onto the channel. Banksy, we were talking before about Optus's first season when it won the the Premier League rights. You know, there was a lot of pressure and a lot of eyeballs on that. And it was the same with the A-League. I think um, maybe from my perspective, you know, people who are really big, football or A-League fans in the country, if you're putting that one game on free-to-air a week, Saturday night realistically isn't really the night that you want to get people watching because, you know, young people, young audience, they're likely going to be out doing stuff. Or, you know, you also want to grow the game and encourage people to start going out to the games. That's right, Carl. I think the other codes really, you have a lot more choice. You have a lot more range and capacity. I mean, it's interesting, even the NBL, um, which 10 has got from a free-to-air perspective, is doing two games a week. Um, so for the A-League to get one live match a week on a Saturday is, yeah, it makes it really tough, I think, to, to help grow the game on uh, from a broadcasting perspective as well. Um, I'm really interested in what's going to happen from here, Cal and, and Kalila. I think the, the Bridget Fair free TV stuff where she said, that they need to renew and expand the anti-siphoning list is really important. And what, what's also fascinating is now that Michelle Rowland has been named the communications minister, she said back in 2019 that Labor would examine these anti-siphoning laws. So we really need to keep an eye now closely on what is going to happen with free-to-air and the streaming sites. Yeah, certainly one to watch because, I mean, at, at this point, customers will have to start looking or being a little bit more strict with uh, what services they're picking and choosing. Up next, uh, Lisa Davies chats to us about her job at AAP and its new deal with Nine. CEO of the Australian Associated Press, Lisa Davies, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Um, so the last Friday, Nine's James Chessel announced that the company's publishing arm had signed a six-month trial with the AAP. Uh, two years after Nine, alongside News Corp, opted to shut the company down. Um, while it is uh, a trial for the next six months, uh, so that Nine can evaluate how the fit is with its output and structure, is this would you say some sort of uh, potential vindication for the decision in 2020 to offer a lifeline to AAP? sure about vindication I think the decisions that were made two years ago um, were done you know in the interests of each organization um, as in Nine and News Corp obviously it was a, a huge disappointment for AAP but I also think um, well I'm an optimist anyway but I also think in some ways it was the best thing that could ever happen to AAP um, it's never really sat that well with me that we were owned by our major competitors um, and 
as organisations, we all have to do what um, is in the best interests of, uh, you know, the longevity and sustainability of what we're doing. So I think AAP's kind of got a new lease on life in some ways and we can try new things and and um, and really try and, uh, you know, support the companies um, as best we can um, that, that need us the most. And um, you're about six months into the role, obviously, coming across from no not quite that long but um you you've you've got an interesting position here because you were obviously the editor of the Sydney Morning Herald one of um nine's mastheads and before that you started out at the AAP um so it's a it's a very Lisa Davies deal (laughs) (laughs) yeah look it's um I've had more more people than I could care to count go um this job is just perfect for you um um but look it has been a you know I I as soon as um I let my former boss in James Chessel um, know what my new role would be. Um, he pretty instantly said, you know, when you get your feet under the desk, let's have a conversation. Um, there are certain areas I know full well um, at the nine mastheads that really um, benefit from using AAP. Um, and I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of upside for parts of that newsroom. And I'm really hoping that the next six months proves that theory. Um, in particular, I would say around sport, it would be the main one. But but also, I mean, um, by the nature of the Sydney Morning in the Sydney Morning Herald in Sydney, the Age in Melbourne, and um, the two smaller satellite sites, I guess, in um, Brisbane, with the Brisbane Times and WA Today. I mean that we AAP does provide coverage in plenty of places where uh, those mastheads don't have. Uh, resources so um, we're really keen to explore what some of those um, content uh, you know arrangements might be and how and how we can support those newsroom newsrooms in providing content from the places where they're not yeah I was going to ask I guess from your um, days at the SMH what was your experience like working with the AAP how valuable did you sort of find that and will whatever the next six months look like sort of be a combination between taking some of those parts from experience and then building in with the new setup of the AAP? Yeah, I think, look, um, you know, AAP has always supported the newsrooms. I think um, the way in which newsrooms also use it can be really beneficial. I think one of the big selling points for AAP is AAP 2.0, if you like, is that we've really honed a lot of what we're doing and also have it incredibly tightly linked to our planning tool. So everyone who subscribes um, can also opt to to subscribe to the um, uh, AAP agenda, which is basically a national diary. And I think that's incredibly useful both for journalists and newsrooms as well as government and other and other areas of public service because on every any given day you can see not only what is happening but also whether we're covering it whether a photograph um or you know whether photographic is also going to be there and what time you can expect copy so we have a really um refined we've got that down to a bit of a fine art i would say and i think that's hugely valuable for newsrooms um and and also government departments and of course you know that's another area i'm looking to have conversations about um but even some corporates too i mean you know how to juggle you know when you make announcements and and being able to see see that content in a live fashion is um is really is really useful 
Yeah, and you, you mentioned earlier that conversation with James Chessel. How, I guess, involved were you personally in securing this um, initial deal? And I guess did some of those previous relations you had at Nine help with that? Um, I don't think they hurt. <laughs> um, yeah, look, James um, and I first caught up, you know, like I called in the day of my announcement, um, uh, just to let him know that's where I was landing. And as I said, you know, we from that point said we would we would catch up again, and we did um, a few weeks after I started. So, um, look, I you know I retain um, very close relationships with many of my former colleagues, and I know that um, you know the Herald newsroom just like the Age newsroom, um, when very uh, was very upset at the potential demise of AAP. And indeed, um, I saw a photograph recently, I'm not sure I've ever actually seen before, of the whole newsroom outside our old building in Piermont holding signs saying, save AAP and yeah. the like from, from that time in early 2020. So, um, you know, I, I'm, very, I'm very gratified that their enthusiasm, that they're um, going to be getting a chance to use our content again. And, you know, like I say, I've encouraged um, uh, my staff here at AAP to also talk very closely with um, their counterparts there to make sure we are delivering the kinds of things that they that they want. Um, and, you know, where we where we do want to make modifications, we, we can do that and, um, yeah, really, really meet that need without compromising, of course, our existing clients um, because, you know, we've retained, I think it's important to note, um, I think 97 or 98% of our clients other than New Nine and News Corp um, and, and the ones we did lose were more due to, you know, unfortunately the COVID pandemic and, and, and things. But AAP continues to be extremely important through regional Australia and reaching millions of Australians every day through those, through those outlets. So um, it's pretty vital we stick around. Yeah. Um... 2020, obviously, a, a, well, a very different time to a, when what we have now, despite being only two years ago. Um, this, do you think there was a potential moment of weakness in the Australian industry where a, an institution like the AAP could have obviously met the demise that it almost did? Do you think that in 2022 now, uh, what do you think this sort of says about the the state of media and journalism? Obviously, we've got some things like the news media bargaining code in play now. Yeah, so I think what was incredibly gratifying, um, particularly for me with with the benefit of hindsight, but also for those who were here at the time, um, when it looked like AAP might close, um, the public outcry about that was was incredible, and I think really um, helped generate the level of support, particularly from the consortia of philanthropists who got together to, to basically buy it um, and ensure that it could survive. Although um, I would just say, you know, that was that was the start of a pretty rocky period in terms of actually um, making it through that first 12 months. Um, you know, there was a lot of... Um, Downsizing, of course, I think we probably cut the entire staff in half or maybe less less than half sort of came across to 2.0 under the arrangement. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, look, it's it, I think I think what people really realised and, and it's even truer today post-pandemic or technically out of it yet, but um, is that regional media is in crisis and has been for some time. Um, Without AAP, I would say that a that 
regional media would not be in crisis, it would, wouldn't exist. Like yeah. It's simply impossible for regional outlets to, um, to in any way survive without the services that we provide because, of course, we do the state and national news um, that supports them and their resources to do the stuff that makes that makes their communities want to pick up that newspaper or listen to that that radio station or um, subscribe to their website. It's 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 that um, that underpinning of the media ecosystem that allows so you know allows media diversity allows those voices to flourish. So um, you know I think what and that's not that was that was true two years ago and it's even truer today. I would say. So how how important do you think things like government funding and the, the, the bargaining code money trickling down from these platforms will be to ensure that these kind of um, or this ecosystem lives on? Because I know you, you recently said with the launch of the um, the app that you did that and because you don't want to be over-reliant on government funding, but how, how much do you think that will play into things in the future? Um, look, I... I think I've said this publicly um, before as well. I don't want AAP to be reliant on government funding in the long term, if it's if it's possible. Um, however, what I would say is that um, we have a really unique model, and we're really trying to reduce that reliance on um, government funding. Um, however, I need you know obviously we need some time to really build the business back into a sustainable. Position, so we are serving all those clients in the best way we can. Philanthropy is a really interesting part of the mix. Um, it's not, it, you know, it's obviously gained greater prominence here in Australia over the last couple of years, but it, and it is hugely, um, um, you know, well resourced in in other countries, in particularly the US, I think. Um, but it, you know, it's important to, I guess, say that why services the world over are loss-making services. It's expensive to do journalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and while obviously we're doing it to a large audience, um, it, it just can be, you know, it doesn't always... It, journalism is expensive to make and cheap to buy is what I, is what I would say. So it's, it's unfortunate that that's the case. But, um, look, I, I, I will be engaging in talks with the uh, new federal government um, as soon as practicable to talk about what, uh, what funding arrangements uh, we would like to consider. But one of those is also, um, you know, many years ago, federal government departments used to subscribe to AAP. It was the way um, politicians and the bureaucracy um, got their news. So uh, in many ways, you know, there may be an avenue just like in the UK where uh, the um the British government is actually one of the major subscribers to the PA, the Press Association, which is which is the British National Wire News Service. So, um, you know, there are lots of options, lots of great things to talk about. We are in every state, every capital city, um, we still have a very robust um, reporting environment. So, um, yeah, I, I, think, I think the future is quite bright. And um, in terms of, uh, I guess, other um, commercial avenues, some of those commercial services did move across to, to News Corp. Is there any sort of plan to replace them in any way? Yeah, look, we're just exploring a whole bunch of things at the moment. I appreciate I'm probably four months into the job and wrapping my head around the different business, the different parts to the business. Um, uh, one, one part that wasn't here when I was last here 18 years ago is AAP Fact Check. 
and that is proving to be an extremely popular new revenue stream for us. The, the, the digital media platforms, Google, Facebook, TikTok and others, um, have entered into some pretty significant arrangements with us for fact-checking. So that's not just us doing a, a report on a fact-check, like a story the way we do, but it's also doing content work for them on, on, the, um, on their side. So um, that's really important work, and I think um, both the previous government and this government are very much supportive of um, ha having greater... Um, you know, greater transparency as to what's going on those platforms and how damaging misinformation and disinformation are being uh, can be withdrawn. So um, we're an independent fact checker. We're internationally accredited, and a lot of that work is um, proving really popular. So um, that's one business avenue that you know ways to increase revenue for us, and um, I'm sure there will be others. Yeah, and we kind of mentioned it before the the app service as well. Um, which is a, a new a new service since your arrival. How's that tracking so far? Yeah, so it's a really interesting experiment. Um, I think it's going okay. We have, to be honest with you, I haven't done a huge amount to um, promote it because, as as I think I said at the time, the, the yes, there was the point of getting some commercial, uh, sorry, some um, a consumer buy-in, but it was also largely for created so that our donors could actually see what. Um, we do, of course, if you're not from a media organisation or don't have that experience with AAP, you probably don't have a clue what it is we actually yeah. do. Um, so I think from that perspective, it's been really helpful for our donors to be able to have a really modern way to view, to view our content. Um, and the other way is through corporates and, and particularly government um, organisations. We really want them to be able to access it in a user-friendly way as we, do, as we do those deals going forward. So I sort of hope to have some more news on that front soon. Um, but also, yeah, I think um, it's in its infancy and, and anyone who's tried to launch an app in this very crowded news market um, will know it's certainly not um, yeah. the thing to do. But look, we have to give these things a try and, and we can do that. So um, we'll, give it, we'll give it some time and, and see where we get to with it, really. And um, I guess more generally, as you mentioned, around four or so months into the role, how, how are you kind of seeing your time there so far? Are you, are you proud of what you've achieved? And is there anything in particular on your to-do list? <laughs> There's lots of things on my to-do list <laughs> and it keeps getting longer. Uh, look, I was really thrilled to get the announcement uh, out on Friday about nine, but also um, what was slightly overlooked is the announcement that Google um, is helping us to reintroduce AAP's cadetship program. Um, I was an AAP cadet some ooh, <laughs> 20 years ago, um, and I would say, it, you know, it trained, it was the best training I've, I have ever um, experienced. And I was really thrilled to be able to get Google on board as a partner to help us with that program because. Um, it is really important that AAP is not only, um, you know, does the best factual, factual objective independent journalism around, but also that we are helping train up the future reporters for other media outlets. I mean, I left um, and have come back. Others um, will have also left and, you, you know, you can't, I always say you can't swing a cat in the media industry without hitting someone who was an AAP cadet. So um, it's, um, it's a very... It's a really great training ground and we're excited to welcome uh, new cadets uh, hopefully as early as July or August. We've just got to get the job out and get recruiting. 
Um, and yeah, look, there's a bunch of other things. I'm I'm in talks um, uh, with. Uh, I'm very keen to um, institute a an Indigenous Affairs desk. Um, also looking for um, support for a medical desk. Um, these are our specialist desks that are being largely supported by philanthropy. Um, very, very much proud of our supporters and um, in those areas. And the Indigenous desk is something that is a huge priority for me, particularly given the work I did at the Herald in reinstituting around there. So, um, yeah, lots of work to do and um, plenty more that I can't talk about. <laughs> And uh, I just just finally, you mentioned the Herald there. I'd love to kind of get um, just, uh, I guess, a few reflections on your your time there and finishing up. But how did that um, that editor role? I mean, how did that sort of change over time? I guess when you first came into it, and then when you left, and I guess also maybe some reflections on the difference between two news organisations: one as editor and now CEO. I imagine they're quite different. Yeah. I mean, the one thing that didn't change throughout my time as editor um, was the relentlessness of it. Um, as anyone who's currently an editor knows um, or has been one, it is, in all senses of the word, a 24-7 job. I used to get asks, asked what sort of hours I worked, and I said, well, my standard answer was um, the only time I'm not working is when I'm asleep. Yeah. Um, and it is, And that's partly, you know, partly my own doing, but it is all partly a function of the job. I really saw, um, particularly as I guess my time went on um, as a brand ambassador as much as an editor um, in this, particularly in this market, in the media space here in Australia, you are fighting for eyeballs and you want to represent the um, organisation and the masthead in the best possible way. And I guess that's one of the things that I like so much about being a CEO um, is that you are absolutely the brand um, ambassador and the public face of the organisation. Um, it's something that I'm really proud of, both my work at the Herald and what, what we were able to achieve there over the five years, going from a one-third, cutting one-third of the staff um, in the horrendous first six months of my editorship and then rebuilding, rebuilding the brand and, and making it as successful as it is today. Um, I'm hugely proud of everything that we all did, like the whole team um, there. And look, you know, I'm really hopeful the same will be said of AAP in a few years' time. Um, I think I learnt so much from that previous role um, uh, that I can apply to this job. Obviously, there are huge differences and, and some new challenges for me in terms of being responsible for, for a much um, a much more complex set of um uh, conditions and and sections, I suppose. Um, you know, there's there's a lot there's a lot that I'm being challenged by, but yeah, there's a lot that feels feels just right um, based on my previous experience. So yeah, I'm I'm really loving it, and uh, yeah, happy to happy to chat about it anytime. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for joining us today. That was great. Thank you. That's it for another week on the Mumbrella Cast. Please make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and check our website, mumbrella.com.au, for more content updates. Banksy, great to see you. Yeah, it was great being down in Melbourne, and I look forward to seeing you back up in Sydney. And Kalila, you too, but virtually this time around. Thanks for having me. I'll see you both, I think, in the next couple of weeks in Sydney. And then thanks to Yatu and Lisa for joining us as well. See you next week. 